Hello, and welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we're concluding our coverage of the novella The Fifth Head of Cerberus. Today, we are absolutely thrilled to be joined again by the Hugo-nominated Wolf scholar Mark Aramini. Mark is the author of Between Light and Shadow, which explores Wolf's early fiction, in which you hear us invoke all the time. He's also the author of a number of scholarly videos that discuss the solar cycle and other Wolf novels. And if you haven't checked out his work, you really should. Mark, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. You know, this time I actually felt a little more nervous than last time. It's kind of like when you're asking somebody out for a second date. You feel like the first one went really well, and then you feel like expectations are high. So hopefully we can have another great episode, and I really am grateful that you invited me back. It's our pleasure. Yeah, we're really glad to be talking to you about The Fifth Head of Cerberus. I think, you know, just seeing what you've written about it and um, just some of the comments you've made recently about it on Reddit for people who have had questions really improved my reading of the story. So I couldn't be more excited to talk to you about this tonight. Excellent. Excellent. And one of the things I did want to do, like I say, is is take a look at it as kind of an individual novella, because I think it still does the things that Wolf does so well, and that there's still a little bit of closure that we can draw, even from some of the, the mysteries that seem like, well, maybe they're only dealt with later. So I'm really excited to look at it individually, which I've never really done before. Yeah, one thing that really surprised me because I was uh, leading the discussion for these was how much of the scholarship and essays and articles treat this story as part of the trilogy of novellas and not as an independent story because it works so well as an independent story. And one of the questions we had was, you know, I know the other two novellas really go into the abos and the the history of St. Anne and questions of identity uh, with relation to whether or not Vale's hypothesis is true. But this story, as Glenn and I kind of reflected upon it, made me wonder whether the Apos were just more thematic, thematically relevant, whether Aunt Janine was really just looking for an explanation of the, the cruelty and irrationality around her as a result of the cloning of the family. And that the abos were just more of uh, of a thematic motif that ties everything together. Yes, I think that's that's a wonderful question, and I'm going to try to answer it by the time we get to the end here, because one of the things that is so central to this particular novella is you have a human being. You definitely do have at least one human being in number five there who has, um, through those generations, through those clone generations, replicated himself so that everything he sees is his own reflection. There's even that talk of the planetary face. So I think that's related to the idea of the abos that mimic others and have no real identity of their own. Um, you know, are, the, are they human anymore? And I think that that's even asking the question of number five, right, and his situation. So I definitely want to explore some of that with, with you know, looking at just the text as well. Well, I think the the plan today is basically, Mark, just to ask you a bunch of questions that we have about the story, uh, in, including this one about the abos. And, you know, we've got in mind to cover some more themes and motifs, as well as the, the puzzles and the mysteries. And I know that uh, you've said that you're going to be able to talk to us about the history of the text and its various editions. Uh, I'm super excited about that. Uh, but I think we should probably start by talking about how 
to read Gene Wolfe, uh, and in particular, how to read this novella, and in particular, particular, how you go about doing that, Mark. Okay, excellent. And this is something that I developed through trial and error, but I want to preface it with with a statement. You know, my whole intent in writing about Wolf was to answer some of those mysteries to help explain it. But I'm going to paradoxically say that if they don't make the text richer, right, I don't want to cut off possibilities and options because I think there's nothing worse than somebody saying this is exactly and only what the text means, right? This is how it has to be. And so even though I feel like my theses usually come across that way, I really want to encourage people to just read and and love and enjoy these books on the terms that they're comfortable with. And now that I've said that, right, I'm going to say something a little bit hypocritical. One of the things that I do believe in when it comes to Wolf is that intent is ultimately discoverable, right? And a lot of people don't agree with me on this, but I think that the way Wolf approaches language, the way that he writes with such a firm structure in mind, that when he's using subjectivity, um, it's usually a screen that is masking something else that's there, right? He has a plan that he's following, and he's just kind of not giving us all of the connection points. So one of the things that I always emphasize is that he is actually a structuralist rather than a post-structuralist, right? That where, okay, there's some sense that there is a slippage in meaning, but at the same time, we have the belief that we can validly communicate because we accept, right, that when I say, I love Mondays, I am talking, and I'm talking about Monday, and you have to say, okay, either I love it, or you can take it ironically. I love Mondays, right? Oh, he doesn't like Mondays. There's not that many options. And I feel like Wolf is always playing that game where he is switching sometimes the literal, the ironic, and the metaphorical, but it's still not as if this it's this morass of inscrutability that you can never get to the bottom of. You just have to decide, okay, what does the text seem to suggest? Um, and so I just want to give an example of... Um, a structural kind of pattern and motif in here, right? I don't know if you noticed it, but in the fifth head of Cerberus, there is a point where he meets Aunt Janine, right? And immediately after, right, that very night, do you recall the dream that he has? Did you guys pay any attention to that? The dream of the abos? Is that what you you were asking? That's exactly the one I'm asking about. Yes, he dreams of the aborigines, right, for the first time. After he meets Aunt Janine. And this is one of those things that is structurally buttressed together in such a way that what you have to ask yourself, what made him dream of the abos at this point? Right. Um, and it seems as if meeting Aunt Janine actually encouraged the, the onset of this particular dream. And so that's that's a structural thing that creates a kind of pattern and motif. Then you have to say, OK, is that something that's going to be repeated or is it just a one off coincidence? Um, And so I think he does things like this all the time. Now, in addition to creating meaning through repetition, he also does something that I consider uh, to make him a true symbolist, right? So with symbols in his work, some people say a symbol can be whatever you want. But at the same time, I usually feel as if most of his symbols are highly allegorical in nature. So, for example, in the novel Peace, right, um, you have an embedded tale in that of uh, a, a married named Naranj who a, is bossing around a guy named Ben Yaya. Well, okay, Naranjo in, in Spanish means orange, and Ben Yaya means son of John, right, if, if you look at it 
in its cultural context there. So you have an orange and a guy who's the son of John being bossed around by him and, and dominated in the embedded story. In the main tale of the novel, you have a guy who owns an orange juice business, more or less, and your main character is the son of John. His father's name is John. That's a one-to-one correlation between the embedded story and the external one. And I think Wolf does this all the time. So he creates these structures where if you don't realize what the allegorical symbolic meaning is, you don't understand. You already have the closure that you need. Right. He's giving it to you there in the text. Um, And some people will argue, well, how do you know what a symbol is? So I am going to ask you guys one one more question and then I'll stop asking questions for for at least a little while. Um, Do you remember the shape of the staircase that Aunt Janine floated down? It was a, a spiral staircase. Is that right? Curved. Right. They call it a helical staircase. If you are writing a novel about cloning and genetic engineering, what does a helix symbolize if it's post-1970s? Right. This is going to be the, the double helix of DNA. Exactly. Right. So that staircase is a DNA strand. And we'll talk about the implications of number five running down it while Aunt Janine floats down it, looking at him the entire way, because this is a symbol of something that is occurring in the text, right? And we're going to tease out the implications of that. But I don't need to wonder very much what a helix represents. It's called a helix, right? It's a helical staircase. Um, So these kind of things that he does, they're highly symbolic, but at the same time, it's still kind of an obvious symbol. You just have to think of it that way. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things we looked at uh, with the dream of the ABBA, we did uh, an episode where we looked at all the dreams and what they meant and see if we could get meaning from uh, cataloging all of the dreams that number five has. And we very foolishly left that one out because it's so easy to miss. I I skipped over it. And then we brought it up in our uh, last episode. And it seems to me as though number five is fighting himself to remember that he had that dream before the drug treatment and that that dream in his mind needs to be before his sense of self dissolved before he starts having these, I don't know what we think are genetic memories. And I just wonder if you have an idea of why that might be the case. And I do want to talk about all the dreams because I think they're all about the same thing. So um, in in one of them where he's beating that big wooden toy, and we might come back to this later, or when he's on the wooden ship that doesn't move, or he's dealing with the abos, or he is surrounded by a bunch of columns that have the word carapace written on it and his own gravestones with different dates are inside it, right? I think those are all about exactly the same thing and that Wolf has imbued wood with a very special resonance in this particular novella um, because what is the first mention of wood that we get? I'm going to answer the question. I'm going to let you guys off the hook here, right? But the weird things about the abos is that it said that they mate with trees, Right. That's one of the things that comes up right at the beginning. But when David says that he's sitting at a table that is orange streaked with black or red, I'm sorry, reddish streaked with black. And you can see those orange trees outside. So we can assume that the furniture he's sitting at when he makes that statement is also made of wood. 
right? And so I'm going to come back to this later with some real textual examples, but I think it's an important thematic motif that symbolizes one thing in the novella. And this is where people are like, Wood, what are you talking about here? But we'll, we'll come to it more clearly later. And I think it's going to be clear when I read the passages. Right? There's two more things I want to talk about. One of them is, okay, first off, before I do any conclusions here, I read the text three or four times. And then I say, what do I not understand? Right. And so in a much later novel by Wolf, um, there was a murder that occurred toward the very end, right? A guy was murdered and you have no information. I'm going to call him character Z. Character Z winds up dying off screen and you have no information about who killed him. You kind of know what he was investigating at the time that he died. And another thing that seems completely removed from context is character A has a first person section in this novel where he's shooting somebody in the head with characters we've never seen before. Now, if those are two things you don't understand, character Z dies, character A kills somebody who I don't know who they are, guess what? You have the solution to your mystery. They just haven't been connected in the text, right? You already know who killed character Z. Now the question is, why? And this is an actual example from a novel late in his, in his career, right, written about 2010. I won't talk much about that, but that's a case of the internal mysteries solving each other. Then you have to just say, okay, if this seems to be the case where one mystery explains another, well, what could, what could justify this, right? What else in the text could possibly explain the character's motivation or what's going on behind the scenes? And so I do think that he structures his texts with that as well, where one mystery describes another um, when you put them together like that. And one more thing that I wanted to talk about was actually about a story you guys have already covered. Um, it's one of my favorites and it also is one of the first things that I actually think I, I really figured out when I was starting this project back in 2012. So you guys did a, a pretty decent job on that, um, the changeling, right? That short story where, where that Peter Palmer comes home from war. Um, but one of the things I wanted to talk about was the use of dates, external details, and logic in coming to a conclusion that I think resonates with the title a little more. So in that one, we had a mysterious boy who didn't age. And for many, many years, right, that was published in, I think, the late 60s, the dominant reading of this was that the main character had experienced something of a psychic or psychotic even break from his war experiences and had created a state of innocence that would last forever, that he'd split. And it was tied to the dates in the text, right? Because before he moved away, it was the year that North and South Korea split. And when he was in the army, it was the year before the North invaded the South. So you're looking at 1945, and then something that's only about five or six years later. And when you look at the dates there, if he was in the third grade, you know, maybe 10 years old in 1944, he can't be old enough to be in the army. And you ask yourself, is this a mistake on Wolf's part, even though he was in the Korean War? And when you're looking at the text there, you have this mysterious three years. But it's, it's in the text, too. There's a three-year gap. And so... When I went to look at whether this main character was born in 1931 or 1934 based on the internal chronology of the text, he was born in 31, 
He would have been old enough to be in the military at the time. You have another bit of information where the father says, hey, this boy appeared when his sister Maria was born. She's three years older than Pete Palmer thinks that he is at the time. So you have the missing three years. And so this was the first time this ever happened to me. I was like, okay, how can I tell which is which? There is a church in the story called the Immaculate Conception. The most common misconception about that is that it's talking about the conception of Jesus, but it isn't. It's talking about the conception of Mary. You have this religious creed that is in there that tells you something about Mary, right? That's when something mystical happened. And so I went to look up if anybody else had ever thought that Peter Palmer was born in 1931. And when I put that in the internet search, a real actor came up who played Little Abner. And I already happened to know that Little Abner meant oaf, right? That's that's who he played. He played an oaf there. And, um, you know, when you think about that word, I also knew the etymology of the word. It was originally referring to an elfin changeling. The title of the story is The Changeling. So everything started to resonate. And I knew that there was real life um, confirmation of what I should have already suspected from the mention of the Immaculate Conception in the text. So Wolf is building things off of creed, and those kind of things aren't subjective. They mean one particular thing. And so I know sometimes that these readings alienate um, readers when you try to get to intention that much and say this is what he meant. But I do think that when it pans out like that, it's it's very, very hard to see it any other way once you see that. And it was kind of like uh, that moment of epiphany, right? And I think something similar happened to me in this novella, and we're going to talk about that later, if that's okay with you, by the end here. But I had a, I had one of those in this novella as well. So I just wanted to set it up as a pattern that Wolf kind of employs. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that with us. It, it definitely jumped out to me in reading this, how much Wolf uses really almost symbolic logic or, you know, something along those lines, almost to the level of mathematical precision when he's mm -hmm. choosing what information to leave in, what to leave out, and when to deploy it. And if you've taken a, a class in logic and you understand how all these things relate, I think you're absolutely right, Mark, and I'm really glad you shared that with us, that, that there is a real logical precision to the way Wolf reveals information, though it is often obscured or confused. It's like a logic puzzle. I totally agree. I always compare his works to word problems where he knows the solution. We may never figure it out, right? We, we may fuddle around and get confused. And, you know, people say, oh, apophenia, you're, you're searching for things that aren't there. You're making connections. But Wolf has already made very precise connections. And he's just erased little like um, the lines. You know, he's got all these dots and they line up. And so you just have to draw that line. But how do you know when it's the right one? Well, in this case, I'm going to save that for when, when we get to the names, um, because that's another key thing that, that kind of clues in what we're dealing with here. And I know you guys talked about it, but I don't think you talked about the connection between the names like Phadria, Nerissa, Urania. They have something in common that we'll talk about in a minute. We can, we can go there right now if you want to. Okay, so let me set it up real quickly with his use of Homer at the very start. I know you guys have probably talked about that scene there, but I think it's very important for setting up all of the motifs of this. So they're, they're talking about the abos 
with uh, I'm going to say Mr. Million, but I, I guess I should call him Mr. Million. That's what know, we call them. <laughs> what, what pronunciation they're using there? Um, but he's quizzing them about the abos, and they're kind of taking one side and the other. And David is distracted because he's looking at tales from the Odyssey, and he's reading that scene, uh, the Polyphemus scene, right? The Cyclops. And I don't know if you mentioned this, but there's a key line in that. When Polyphemus asks Odysseus Odysseus who he is, he says, I am no man. That's what he says, right? And when I when I when I saw the Polyphemus scene, that that memory jumped out at me so strongly. Because here we're talking about what is human, what is not human. And David is entertaining himself by reading a scene where prominently you have the declaration, I am no man. And almost immediately in this scene, to play with each other almost violently, you have number five kicking at David's legs. And instead of hitting a leg, he hits the leg of the chair, which because of that red tabletop streaked with black, I'm going to assume is actually a wooden chair, even though that's not said um, directly. So we have in this a bunch of tools that came from St. Anne, but there's something else important about them as well. They're replicas of tools. So in this scene, you have somebody reading something that says, I am no man. You have number five, kicking at the leg of a chair. You have tools that are not real tools. They're replica tools, but they look like real tools, right? And so do they serve any kind of function? No, but they look like they do. And so I think Wolf has set up a lot of themes that we're going to expand upon quite a bit by the time I get to the description of the demi-mondanes and the girls that are working for um, Maitre, right? So he's already set up a lot of this right there. So, I mean, I'm, I'm going to ask you, I said I wouldn't ask you too many more questions, but when the reference is to I am no man, what does that make you guys think about? You know, at that point when we were covering it, we you know we made the decision not to read ahead and right. dig into the mystery. So the Abba mystery was really central to this section that we were covering. And when you have this part of the Odyssey come up, you are also dealing with um, Odysseus, who is a man outwitting uh, like a, a. I think Glenn described a, a pastoral creature of of right. the gods. So we have. Right. Uh, Polyphemus, who is, uh, I think, the son of Neptune, yeah, right? Neptune. And he is a different race. He's duller, but he is also a child of the gods. So we were trying to figure out if there's a connection here between the, the humans and, and the, the children of gods, and if the abos are meant to be this representation of, of innocent creatures, and they were corrupted by their fall from St. Anne into St. Saint-Croix, you know, later on, we only get descriptions of the Starcrossers f- crashing into the, the you know, right. water of Saint-Croix, um, but nothing ever really leaves, nothing really ascends. So I think that's kind of the thing we were working with within that section of the Odyssey. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come out and say, I think it implies something about David. Um, I think it implies something about the situation number five is dealing with, where you know, if you declare I'm no man in that particular way, maybe he isn't entirely dealing with 
human beings. But his own humanity is also something that's in question here. And we'll, we'll get back to that. But that's in a more metaphorical sense, right? I don't think literally that number five is inhuman. He's clearly genetically a human being. And I think that scene where he's running down the helical staircase also totally reinforces that. He has been bred naturally, right? He's the one who runs down the, the helix. Aunt Janine, on the other hand, when she's introduced, it's said that she is a black queen um, who's an imitation or a copy of a white queen that he or a, a, an echo of a white queen he would never meet. Right. So there's even at that point the idea that she's not quite necessarily unique or one of a kind, that there's something imitative about her. And we'll we'll get into that in a bit. But I guess now is as good a time as any before we go to the Virgil illusion later to talk about the names of some of the women involved. I know you talked about Phaedria at great length. Um, you were dealing with uh, Phaedrus, I think, right? And, yes. And, yeah. And okay. I just have one thing I want to say before we get into that. There is another, you know, helix in the story, and that's the library. Yes, the library. Exactly. Which, and he which, runs up it. He runs up it and ascends. And we kind of read this. He, the the freedom he feels when he breaks through the the kind of roof of the library and overlooks the bay as this is his kind of place of innocence and the, the basement is where the laboratory is and I think you you have this you know as I hear you talking about it this symbolic war taking place between his uh, potential ascension and his descent and mm-hmm. which way he decides to go, which we know kind of by the end of the novel, I think is the, the the wrong way. Right. And he also, when he's running up there, though, there's still something he's trying to discover. He's looking for the books that has his father's name on it, right? So he's still seeking that origin point or, or something about it, right? At the top of the library up there, he's like, where I, I'm in the section where there's all these wolf names, right? So right. in the W <laughs> section here, and he's looking for it. And actually, that is one of the changed sections from the original novella. There's three major changes. And like, I keep saying this, I, I apologize. We'll come back to that a little bit later. But I do think that that you're right. That is a symbol of going up and down the helix, right? There's something there about freedom and redemption and about being trapped down in the basement. That is, I mean, for all intents and purposes, hell-like, right? You have Cerberus guarding there. You have um, the, the French street names. When you translate them, they're all pretty nasty. I'm sure you guys translated some of them, right? Mm-hmm. The Rue yeah. d'Astico was the street of maggots. Uh, Rue de Goût was the street of sores, I think. And then we had uh, Sultan Bank, which was like a street performer, maybe a charlatan, but more like somebody who's doing performances or acts, right? Somebody who's acting in the street. And um, that also, I think, is relevant to what Phaedria makes them do. So the way that I read the names Phaedria, Nerissa, Urania, right? Aunt Urania is um, Phaedria's aunt, or the monster, as she's called when she's first introduced with them. And so this is that moment, you know, I'd already kind of concluded from some other features of the aboriginals that we were dealing with an entire colony that had been taken over by them, right? So no big surprise there. I feel like everybody in this novella, except for number five and Maitra, are probably aboriginal in nature or Possibly if the potential of a, of a cross actually does exist, half Aboriginal. I'm still not certain about David. That's the one thing that I still at the end kind of hesitate about, right? And, and um, one of those reasons is that there's no evidence that he's actually an heir of Maitre, even though Maitre talked about having an outcrossing at one point. And so, you know, what is David then? Um, but in this, 
Phaedria, if you look it up and you don't go to Phaedrus, you're going to find a species of moth, right? And before, this is the, the moment, right? Before I ever looked up the names Nerissa or Urani, I knew that they would also be either species of moths or butterflies. I knew it before I looked it up. And sure enough, when I looked it up, right, Sapora Nerissa um, is a butterfly in the Pyridae family. Urania falgans, there's many types of Urania day. Um, there's like 700 species of butterfly under that name, that nomenclature. These are all butterflies, right? And so this is another thing that, you know, we should talk about, I guess. If you have a street of maggots, a maggot is kind of that larval stage before it transforms or metamorphoses into something else. Um, butterflies also have that multi-part stage in their life cycle, right? Where they were something, a caterpillar, and then they transform into a moth or a butterfly or whatever the adult stage is. So all three of those women have that name. And I think it's very significant, especially when we look at some of their physical descriptions in a little bit, because they're called monstrous, they're called grotesque, they're called freakish. And is this really just, um, coincidence, right? Or is this something more? When you hear the name monster, you, you kind of tend to think of certain things. And so, you know, before I ever looked it up, I knew that they were going to be butterflies and they were, right? Some people say that's confirmation bias. I don't think so. I think Wolf intentionally chose the names of butterflies and moths for these women. Yeah, we made a real connection there too. I don't think we brought up any of that in our uh, recap or discussion of this this novella. We were really focused on the connection between those names and the kind of uh, senses of magical creatures or nymphs okay. or elf queens yes. or, or, you know, the, the, F Fidra is used in the fairy queen. Um, Nerissa is, uh, you know, from Merchant of Venice, Merchant of Venice which is yes. kind of a big part of this story. Uranis, the daughter of, you know, or the f feminization of Uranus, the, one of the... Uh, uh, the muse of the sky and who incidentally is is evoked in Milton in Paradise right. Lost in, in book seven I think um, and so we were looking at that evocation plus the reference to the the word pandemonium which is also kind of a Milton word mm -hmm. um, as really solidifying this place as hell as a place of the fallen angels maybe and really kind of doubling down on this idea that the abos might be these kind of edenic or innocent creatures who have been shipwrecked on this hellish planet much in the way of the the rhyme of the ancient mariner or you know mm -hmm. the odyssey and, and the way all that sea faring imagery yes. is used in the story so I, I i'm really excited to hear kind of how this butterfly imagery works as well because what we suggested was that the monster and the reference to this woman being a monster, especially as it's used so closely with these references to how normal plastic surgery is, which also means that maybe people can't change. They are stuck with their image that this aunt of Phaedria is a woman who has not had plastic surgery and is a grotesque as a result. It certainly could be. Now, there were some changes from the original novella and it's 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 getting kind of close to that scene and the scene with the play, but most of them have to deal with actually Aunt Janine and um, a few with David. So we'll talk about those in a bit. There's one more name I wanted to bring up 
And I'm pretty sure you couldn't find anything that was firm on it. The name Mary Doll. Uh, well, I floated a pretty ridiculous theory that Brandon let me uh, let me have a pass on. So uh, this was on our list of questions to ask you tonight for sure. Okay, what was your theory? Because I have a theory as well, but I think it's thematically apt, but it's not necessarily the same name. Um, in uh, 1920, and it was finished being built in 1924, um, Queen Mary had a dollhouse made that was like a one-twelfth replica and it had working shotguns it had pipes that had water famous authors of the time like kipling mr james a.a milney thomas hardy they wrote little tiny volumes to put in there and there was also a hidden garden hidden underneath it so you had this 112th model replica that was basically queen mary's dollhouse and i felt like that was an apt thematic echo of a city named Port Maimizam, which means basically mimicry, right? So you have this replica, this this image of, of something being repeated that's not genuine, but it seems to be. I mean, it's almost lifelike, right? You have you have pipes, you have books, you have a hidden forest in it. Um, and so it's, it's a pretty awesome creation. It took four years for them to build it. But um, that's just, you know, a guess, because I couldn't find anything with Mary Doll unless I assume it's Marisol or something like that. Well, that's better than uh, than what I floated, which was that okay. uh, Mary Doll is one of the 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 nicknames that Tom Bombadil has for Goldberry, who is the only nymph who appears in the Lord of the Rings, and oh. given all these other nymph names. Um, that was me thinking that that Wolf was uh, really inserting himself here into uh, you know sort of the rich tradition of of literature and and uses of of nymphs by making a a joke about a real deep Lord of the Rings cut. Okay, yeah, that sounds pretty compelling as well, right? I was just looking for anything, and so that that actually sounds pretty reasonable to me. I mean, Wolf did love Tolkien. Was it spelled the same? Was it spelled differently? I don't, I don't have any recollection of that scene. It it is spelled differently, and and it is uh, Tom Bombadil is saying, "Hey ho, Mary Doll," and it is you know Mary as in merriment. Okay, though it is not Doll okay. as in like you know, you know a, a child's play toy that resembles right. a person. It is just D-O-L. So it is okay. going to have to be a homonym, though I, I guess yours rests on it too. And of, of course, one of the oh, things yeah. that I think, even especially talking about these names, about how they are nymphs, how they are literary characters, how they are also moths and butterflies, Wolf is clearly operating on multiple levels with the meanings of these right. names here. I, I don't think they have to be just one, even if one is the more important, perhaps. No, I agree with that. I just think that there's a reason he chose all of them that unifies them, right? So it can mean like, okay, Nerissa, maybe she um, really is like an advisor, just like she was to Portia, right, in Merchant of Venice. But there's also that resonance, that level of being uh, a being that has an adult life cycle that looks different than its larval stage that resonates with the actual plot of the text as well. And that's another thing that, you know, I kind of want to just real quickly talk about. I should have done it at the beginning. Reception is one thing, but the thing that complicates Wolf is that so much of reception is trying to figure out actual plot details, right? Like if we're talking about a Shakespeare play, Hamlet is going to die every single time we read that play. We know he's going to die, right? So we can speculate on what the ghost is, but we know he's not going to be an alien. He's not an extraterrestrial, right? We know that it's kind of limited in that. He's either a ghost or a deceiving demon, or maybe he's a hallucination. And everything tends to point toward the ghost when we look at everything else. But Wolf complicates saying, okay, 
here's a mystery that's totally related to the plot, right? And so, you know, you can be wrong about the plot. If somebody writes a paper about Hamlet surviving, they've misread the play. And so that's the danger, right? That's the danger of talking about Wolf all the time, that you've missed something about the plot and you're saying something that's actually factually maybe not precise. If you get the logic puzzle wrong, if you miss the, you know, A equals... O or whatever you know formulation if you miss that you you actually miss the crux of the plot and for me what's really helped me read kind of as a as a counter to your ability to really break down the logic which i admire hugely in in your work um i always look for thematic resonance yes. Yes. So, I mean, I think you and I have a little bit different approaches, but the it's the puzzle if it because Wolf is so good, such a masterful writer, writer that to me if the solution to the puzzle doesn't match what I pick up as the theme or the meaning of the story, right. that's exactly. kind of I can sometimes discard that. Though I can also be wrong about those as the themes sometimes as well. No, I, t- I totally agree. That's that's one of the secondary things that I'm looking at. What does the theme seem to be of this? Is it you can't go home again? Is it you know you're not the same man or something? What what actually is the big thematic picture? And that's helped me quite a bit as well in in saying okay, well maybe we can discard this as just reading into something. And um, so having said that, I know you guys are familiar with what I've written about this and said about this already. And one of the big deals that I made was the weird legs that all these women have, right? Um, they, they have, they have their staff-like, it's called. Um, Nerissa's grotesquely lanky at the end, right? She has this long limbs. Um, and so I did want to look at a few particular pages where they're actually described. And I want to talk about how they're described as well, because one of the key things that I like to try and do is to switch between the metaphorical and the literal with Wolf and see what sticks. And so we know, right, that at the very beginning, we learned that the natives mated with trees and they bore enough damage to have scars, right? They were scarred. And so um, I'm assuming you're using the Orb Tor um, edition when you... Yes, that's right. Are reading this. Okay, great. And so I'm just going to refer to the page numbers from that. So on page 27 of the, the Orb edition of Fifth Head of Cerberus, at the middle of the page, there's a description of the women, the girls. And I want to read it. The girls, my father's employees, in costumes that displayed their rouged breasts and enclosures of twisted wire like bird cages, or gave them the appearance of great height dissolved only when someone stood very close to them, or gowns whose skirts reflected their wearers' faces and busts, as still water does the trees standing near it, so that they appeared in their intermittent colored flashes like the queens of strange suits in a tarot deck. So here, you get them compared to trees, right? right? Right there it says they're like trees in the reflection of the water and a few pages later on page um 32 here we go two of my father's demi-mondains were waiting in the hall costumed and painted until they seemed more alien than any abos stately as lombardy poplars 
and inhuman as specters with green and yellow eyes made to look the size of eggs and inflated breasts pushed almost shoulder high. Though they maintained an inculcated composure, I was pleasantly aware that they were startled to find me in the doorway. So they're compared to trees, and then in a few pages they're compared to Lombardy poplars, and on the very next page their legs are compared to varnished staffs of flags. And I don't know about you, but usually when I use varnish, I'm dealing with some kind of wood there, right? And so Lombardy poplars are very interesting because they're kind of a um, a transplant to America that became so popular that they sprung up everywhere almost like a parasite, right? So I, I took a few bits of information down about that. But in general, these things by, I think, the 19th century had become so overused that everybody was sick of them and started to look at them as, as almost a, like a disease, like a parasite, right? So the Lombardy poplar, Andrew Jackson wrote, it's too well known among us to need any description. It's something that's foreign to America that then completely took it over and became almost a nuisance, right? So I thought that was such an interesting way to describe these women. And this is not the only place that we're going to get wood associated with something very alien, right? Because he says right there, they're inhuman as specters, green and yellow eyes, more alien than any abo. And so this imagery that you see with them, I think, is also reflected in the dreams where you have the wooden ship, you have the pillars that he's trapped inside, and you have that wooden toy soldier that he's fighting, right? It's not a metal soldier. It's, it's a wooden one. And he likes it, but it's bigger than him, and the boy is trying to actually knock it down, but he can't. And so one of those questions that Maitre is asking with his experiment is, why can't I take control? Why can't I win? Why can't I be the ruler of this miserable little colony planet? And part of it is that maybe humans have lost control of it completely, right? Maybe that toy soldier, maybe that ship, maybe those pillars that he's surrounded by are actually manifestations of exactly the same thing, right? Something that imitates him, but in so imitating him, traps him forever in something that's an alien landscape. That's a really fantastic and, and compelling reading and very different than ours, which is great because I think um, you're really connecting it to the central mystery of the story and potentially the trilogy of novellas, which is determining whether or not Vale's hypothesis is true. And, right. I, and I have a question I want to ask about Vale's hypothesis. I think it's clear in the story, or at least in the hypothesis that's given, that the Abos took over the original French colonists. But then there was a second wave of uh, colonials from England that came. It's and, never clear. It's never clear that they're from England. Yeah, just English. English speaking. So that's right. English speaking. Yes. And, and yeah, given yeah. that one of them is Gene Wolfe, it's probably American. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's right. Um, but given that there's two waves here, and Vale's hypothesis really only speaks about the, I don't know, insurgents perhaps of the Abos or th the visitation that resulted in the imitation of the humans. You know, how do you approach that in the story? Is everybody a half abo, as the narrator accuses John Marsh? What does the like the perfect teeth of Phaedria and the green eyes without flaws, these kinds of 
moments where the narrator is obsessed with flawlessness or, or recognizes it have to do with that, if you can make any connection sure. there, because and, I really so struggle to. It's, it's pretty clear from the original source of the wool, I'm going to call them the wool family, but I mean Maitre and his family, right? Because it says almost certainly they're, they're um, from Wales or Scotland or Ireland, right, when he's looking at them. I don't think that the second wave of colonization is actually human. Okay, so what happened is there were French colonists on St. Anne. Now, obviously, the, with the question with the language, I think, is, is probably one that complicates this a great deal. But I was always kind of under the impression when I was reading it that the second group of colonists is the abos just taking over everything. When the Frenchmen land, they take them over right away. And then they kind of eventually migrate over. Um, and so – but the language complicates that quite a, quite a, quite a great bit. And so perhaps there is some blending of a second wave where, where the French are defeated. But it's never actually clear that, that this second wave is, is entirely from Earth, right? That's, that's, a, that's an assumption that we make in the text because we don't actually – it's never said that, hey, it's a second – this is the English people or the American people who took it over. Yeah, that's fascinating. I have two kind of remarks on that. First is um, it really highlights what – the narrator, when he's accusing Dr. Marsh of being half Abo, says, which is, you learned about this from Earth 20 years ago. So we know that there are Earth visitors on St. Anne in this novella by itself, and that that could be very possible, that uh, there were people from Earth, maybe English-speaking people from Earth, who landed on St. Anne, and then when they crashed down... Um, and I, I really like the Milton imagery here, though I'm happy to be proven wrong as we get deeper into these novellas that the Abos are maybe not the the innocent angelic type or Edenic type of figures. But um, I don't know. That seems to work with that. And the other thing is during the play, one thing we talked about while we were reading this is that in this story, because it is a kind of memoir that is loosely stream of consciousness, proximity mm-hmm. can create meaning the way ideas right. are connected to one another in the text through just their proximity as the narrator is reminded of one thing that comes up in what he wrote before is really meaningful during the play he describes the demi mondains as the grenadiers surrounding the french colonists and if what you're yes. saying about these women that they are all alien in some way that they all have this mated with wood imagery associated with them then that really reinforces your reading of the story and i think that's wonderful yeah i really do think when that scene is there there there's so many things going on with that and i have to ask you right if you noticed it's david and phadria who keep asking where's the money where's the money where's the money when they're breaking into that kind of warehouse um, you know, David keeps repeating it. He's obsessed with where the money is. And so I'm going to ask you if you, if your entire being, your essence revolved around taking your identity from someone else, what ideal professions would you have? One illicit and one licit or legal? Well, I'd have to say the two professions you would have would be as an actor who takes on a, a role 
and as a thief who takes what others own. And we see Phaedria doing both of those things where she is taking on roles all the time. She's encouraging this. And she's also taking freely what others have. And so I think this is another thematic echo of I'm going to take what you have because that's how I define myself. I define myself by what you are. And that's why when Aunt Janine looks at number five running down the helical staircase, I think it's um, it's a symbol, right, of how she actually – creates her identity by looking at the family. She resembles Matris so much because this is this is a mechanism that she uses to establish her identity. She sees it, she covets it, she becomes it. Right, and she in the same way also wants Matris money, this hoard yes. of money. There's one more thing I want to talk about, and then obviously the pattern of both Phaedria and both um and, and Aunt Janine having those leg injuries, right? One is crippled completely. Her legs just fall helplessly down. And the other, when we meet her, has um, that, that severe injury that requires a cast. And so this is another pattern because we have been trained to look for useless hands this whole time, right? We know from the beginning they don't use tools so well. And yet the only indication we have in this particular novella of a hand is associated with Port Mamizan because it's built on fingers and a thumb, right? That's its structure. And I don't know if you picked up on the address of, of the, the place, right? 666 Salton Banc, which is in Port Mamizan, Department de la Man, right? Department of the Hand. So this whole place is named after a hand. So I, I always argue that the useless hand of the Abos is actually this whole city where nothing new has been built in like a hundred years or something like that. And this is something March comments upon. He's like, wow, there's all these old buildings. There's nothing new. On Earth, there's old buildings, but there's a thousand new ones too. Why isn't there anything built here? And I think that this is another argument for either supreme societal decay and um, regression or the fact that they simply don't know how to build anymore, and they're just living in the ruins of what once was. Um, and so, but I'm I'm going back to when they break into the warehouse now because this also has something to do with the trees that I really want to talk about. They come across the dogs. They were all fighting dogs, but of every size from ten pound terriers to mastiffs larger than small horses, brutes with heads as misshapen as the growths that appeared on old trees, and jaws that could sever both a man's legs at a mouthful. So in this one sentence, once again, we have these weird misshapen dogs that are the gr misshapen growths of old trees. That's a weird metaphor. And they have jaws that could sever a man's legs in a mouthful. That's pretty grotesque right there. And it's also associating legs, the tree once again, and the, the weird life on St. Croix at this point, right? And it's so easy to just go past that and think, why is this dog so powerful that it can cut off both a man's legs in a bite, right? That's pretty bizarre. That seems to feed right into the, the two images that you're trying to link up here, right? Legs and trees. Right. Here they are, again, even in a, a simile that's meant to describe a, a, a mutated dog. Yes, exactly. And so I think this is something that happens all of the time in Wolf. And you notice it after a while. You're like, I would not describe this in this particular way unless there was a reason to it. And so I think we can you know, leave that behind and maybe come back to it at the very end. But I did want to talk some about um, textual differences in these in these different versions in the orbit, in the ace, in the Scribner, and in the orb editions. If that's okay with you guys, and I know you talked a little bit about 
one of the concluding scenes where a line was set up all by itself, right, on page 71, where he enters his um, father's office with Marsh, and it says, like the sound of a switch or old glass breaking. Well, there's a couple things dealing with glass that are important in this particular novella. One of them is on page 39, where Maitre asks um, number five, have you seen my lab behind the big mirror there? And so I think this is set apart quite intentionally because this is the moment when he goes in there with his scalpel in his pocket, ready to perform the act, where he's going to break that mirror right? He's going to break the mirror. He's going to enter the lab. The lab after this point is going to be his. This is a pivotal moment. And so one of the huge questions in the fifth head of Cerberus, is there any escape for number five ever, right? Was he set into this trap? Um, Marsh says nature and nurture are everything. That's the whole story. And since you have exactly the same upbringing as Maitre, you're going to do exactly the same thing. There's no difference, right? That guy who lived on earth once upon a time, he might've been different, um, the original who um, was basically number one, I suppose we could call him, right? If, if Mr. Million was number two and the, the grandfather was number three, Maitre was number four, and then number five obviously would be the fifth in this line in which the original is number one. That's a, another reading of of the number, right, of his name there. And so at this point, he's going to become exactly the same as everybody else. And there's another moment on page 61, where he catches his reflection. Um, and he's been kind of, I guess, uh, drugged out for a while. And he sees a stranger looking at him, right? Striding toward us was a tall, high-shouldered young man who halted with a startled look, just when I did. He was my own reflection in a guilt-framed pier glass. And I felt a momentary dislocation that comes when a stranger, an unrecognized shape, turns or moves his head and is some familiar friend glimpse, perhaps for the first time from outside. So that's another prominent glass mirror image. And there's one more after this when he's talking to his father and he catches their reflections. And for a moment, it looks as if they together are the forearmed slave who was killed in the mirror. So when he sees them in the mirror, it reminds him of the slave. Just as seeing that forearmed slave, when he sees his reflection in his eyes, um, he notices, wow, my face looks like the slaves as well. So I think this is all pointing toward that moment where number five truly becomes monstrous and he becomes Matra at that point, right? The other is dissolved. The mirror breaks. There's only one after this point because he's going to kill his father. So walking in there at that point, I think that is the pivotal moment of the novella. And that's the moment that damns him into this eternal cycle that just cannot be escaped. And the question I think we have to ask ourselves is, was there ever a way out or not? I mean, I'm going to say yes, but at this point when the glass breaks, I think this is the moment where there's no more two options. It's just one, right? There's no more reflection. He simply is Matra at this point. Yeah, I think that was Glenn's reading as well. I had kind of hoped for, uh, I don't know, a more uh, <laughs> redemptive uh, <laughs> prison seat like sequence and a nice little redemptive prison montage in this story but it never it never really came uh which was a little disappointing but i think it helps really explain the end of the story and i think glenn and i both saw kind of mary doll and david as the figures of redemption as being able to break the cycle that number five and his uh, further line are are stuck in 
Okay, the one thing that I think kind of damns David, though, is when he's in the, 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 the warehouse there, he keeps asking, where's the money? Where's the money? Where's the money? Right? He does it several times. And then they kill that creature rather than let it live. And David suffers a leg wound at this point, right, from the scalpel that number five has. He suffers that leg wound. And so I do think that this is another microcosmic examination of what Maitre's line has done to Port Mimizan because there's a planetary face and it's his face, right? That's the face that's reflected everywhere because he is the thing that's being reflected monstrously, whether it be from cloning, whether it be from the abos looking at him, right? All this whole planet is centered on that ego, that self that cannot accept death, even though it in effect killed itself long ago when it became Mr. Million, right? So I think there's, there's several levels to this, um, this hell that number five is living in. And one of them is that the absolute obsession with the self has created an entire environment where the self is everything. It's reflected back at you from the alien life, from the human cycle that's going. And I mean, is there an escape from the self or not? And so I think that's, you know, one of those big moments there where the mirror breaks and all there is is the self. Yeah, it really struck me that that reference to the planetary face is really a reference to, which I think I had missed, um, the fact that the clones are everywhere, that mm -hmm. maybe it's not that there are only a few family lines, but that the Apos imitated the, hum the humans that were there, this wolf family, yes. Um, yes. and that there are just these prosthetic or cosmetic changes to the face, but everybody is a variation of number five in some level. Yes. Yeah, I think that that's actually my favorite reading that I came up with this last time when I was reading. And I'm like, yeah, everything is just his, he's stuck in like a, a fun house, you know, where everything is his distorted reflection. And how can you move forward? So he feels as if he's trapped, but what's trapped him is really himself that's done it in all kinds of ways. Um, so I don't know how you guys feel about that. We can always come and talk about more later, but I did want to get to some of the textual changes in, in the additions because there actually are some major ones, um, or at least added scenes, right? And so the original was published in Orbit 10, and um, I actually recorded every single comma change, every single capitalization change. It's all written in my my orb edition. I'm not going to go over most of them because a lot of them are just like changing ellipses to a dash or um, changing higher cart from two words to one. But in the library scene um, where he goes to look up at the books, I wanted to read the original version of that. Um, so he's gone up the coiled slope. The upper shelves were, if anything, in worse disorder than those more conveniently located. And one glorious day when I attained the highest of all, I found occupying that lofty, dusty position only a lorn copy of Monday or Tuesday, leaning against a book about the assassination of Trotsky. I never found any book of my father's. So you only get two examples of Wolf in the original novella, Fifth Head of Cerberus, Monday or Tuesday by Virginia Woolf. And then that, that book on the assassination of Trotsky. That's it. So you don't get reference to the mile-long spaceship by Wilhelm 
or Werner Vinge's short stories misfiled or any of the other clues that you have there. So that scene was a little bit longer in the, the, um, the novel version. Now, a lot of commas were taken out. It seemed as if in the original novella, he used a lot of a positive phrases that were separated by commas. In the novel version, he got rid of the commas around the positive phrases, and he put more commas after introductory phrases. Since we're not taking an English composition class, we're going to skip those kind of things. That's a great um, idea because I was going to make you explain what all of those things were for our listeners. Okay, yeah, I, I can. I can. A positive uh, phrase is just extra information that occurs after something has been positively identified. So if I say, John, the tallest man in the room, left, the tallest man in the room would have to be separated by commas. Well, in the novel version, those kind of things don't have commas surrounding them. Um, and so – it really, I mean, it's just a matter of preference. I actually think Wolf made those changes because they were the same in the Orb and in the Ace edition of the novel, which actually have some more significant um, differences later on in the second and third novellas that we won't talk about quite yet. Um, but another thing that changed was the French. So in the original novella, um, rather than saying like Nymphe du Bois, in, this, in the original novella, he just keeps calling the boy a protege with one E. In the novel, it's protege with another E added at the end. And then at the end, it says nymph de bois to replace one of the uses of protege. There's added parts in sentences like sometimes mankind is changed from, from men to mankind in the novel. And then some uses of demi-mondaines is just girls in the original um, novella. But Interesting. Another... So he wanted more. He wanted to really have demi mundane be a real impactful word. Is right. that kind of the implication of that? Right. Exactly. So he's using more French words. Even things like address de convenance was changed to address de commodation. And I apologize for my terrible French pronunciation there. There's a few other changes and one of them is actually in marsh's description and he adds marsh's age because in the original novella you don't even get the sense that he's young and in this one he wore a beard very black and more full than the current style was young i thought though of course considerably older than i so that whole part right there about his age was taken was not in the original um novella and then every time you had 666 it was actually spelled out completely like 666 in the original novella. When Dr. Veal reveals herself and invites Marsh in, the door just closes. Wolf added in, leaving me standing open-mouthed in the corridor. So his shock right there. And the second major change is the occupation of Phaedria's father. In the novel, which is what we have, right, which everybody reads, he's in textiles and drugs. In the novella, he's in drugs and slaves. And his relationship to the warehouse owner is slightly different because it's like he has um, the chance to take the risk for him. You know, like it's like, oh, he, he uh, ensures all the risks there. So that little part is added in the original novella that's taken out later. And then there's two more big scenes that are added. And one of them is right before the play 
when on page 52, Aunt Janine is about to go to the play and visit. And so she needs help getting out. So they're lifting her up. And there's a whole like five paragraphs that were added to the novel. So in the original, I'm just going to read like the paragraph before and where it jumps to. So on page 51, it says, because I would have to arrive at least an hour early to make up, it was no more than late afternoon when I called for my aunt. She showed me in herself and immediately asked my help for her maid, who was trying to wrestle some heavy object from the upper shelf of a closet. It proved to be a folding wheelchair. Under my aunt's direction, we set it up. When we'd finished, she said abruptly, give me a hand in, you two, and taking our arms, lowered herself into the seat. Her black skirt, lying emptily against the leg boards of the chair like a collapsed tent, showed legs no thicker than my wrists, but also an odd thickening, almost like a saddle below her hips. Seeing me staring, she snapped, won't be needing that till I come back, I suppose. Lift me up a little, stand in back and get me under the arms. I did so, and her maid reached unceremoniously under my aunt's skirt and drew out a little leather padded device on which she'd been resting. Shall we go, my aunt sniffed? You'll be late. Then it jumps down to, our play went smoothly enough with predictable cheers from members of the audience who were, or at least wished to be thought, descended from the old French aristocracy. So there's five paragraphs in there where it talks about how her um, ability to hang in the air is mechanically derived. Um, it's not necessarily anti-gravity, but a regular prosthetic device. And then he says, I suppose anti-gravity frightened me. And she says, this is an addition, right? The last paragraph that's added in, in the novel. I used the iron banister when I went down the stairs with you once. It has a very convenient coil shape. So Wolf finds an excuse to explain her floating and to put that coil shape of the, the stairs into the novel again. So that's not in the original novella. What you've done is you, you actually have a copy of Orbit 10, which is amazing. I would yes. love to have that. And you've done this comparison. Do we know what the manuscript that Wolf submitted to Orbit actually looked like? And in particular, I'm thinking about these changes to uh, adding more French into the novel version. Did Wolf originally write those words and the editor of Orbit said, hey, this is a magazine for America. Uh, people don't know French. Let's get rid of the French. Are these things that Wolf had in originally that an editor made him take out that he was able to put back in because it was being published in this new way? Or are these things that he was reconsidering and changing uh, and uh, making something new for the novella or for the novel right. version? I, I think he's making something new for the novel version because there's only like two things in the original novella that I think you could never figure out without the other two novellas to help you. And one of them is what Marsh is. But um, we can talk about his portrayal in, in the original novella. Because even in the original novella, when he hears Marsh talk, he says it's almost as if he's not saying anything, as if he was communicating purely by thought. And I don't think there's anything in this novella where you could figure out what that is. But there is something in the next two. You say, oh, he communicates by thought. There's something in that. So I think he had a plan. But I don't think Damon Knight changed very much. Because by this point, he developed a pretty good relationship with Damon Knight. Um, and... I think Damon Knight encouraged him to expand it further, actually. Um, so that's one of those things where it's added, but I don't, I don't think Damon Knight cut anything that we have in here now. I think um, probably when Wolf reread it, he's like, why does Aunt Janine float? 
You know, like what, what, what's the reason for that? I never gave it. Maybe we should come up with something there. Um, cause I mean, that's one of, that's a big question, right? I mean, why would this woman float? You know? Well, and so another thing that changes is when they enter the warehouse, um, there is more emphasis on David asking about the location of the money. And, you know, so on page 59 at the start, at the very top, there's a part that's added. It said, since I was certain that we were wherever we were without permission, that whole part is added. Um, she shook her head. And then when I was unable to understand what she said, even when she exaggerated the movements of her lips, that part is added as well about her lips being exaggerated. Then later he said, David had asked about the location of the money. So this turns... David asks two times already in the novella. So this makes number five mentioning that three times. In this scene, David, we're reminded that David keeps asking about the money even more in the novel version. It's important. And then um, the, the explanation for how Phadria learned the warehouse is a little bit different um, because Phadria's father actually seems to be working with this guy in the original novella. And in this, he just heard about it, right? And he happens to have some, some inside track. Um, but in the novella, he's actually dealing in slaves, not just in textiles. So if, if Phaedria's father is more involved in slaves in the original you know, magazine version, is Maitre then less involved in slaves? Is, is this something where Wolf decided that he wanted to emphasize the Wolf's family involvement in slaves and had to move that from another character? No, it's still, you know, he sells all those extra clones into slavery just the same. So nothing changes about that. Um, a few things that change about the Matra, actually very little changes about Matra. He's, he's pretty much the same. We do get the addition that the scalpel number five had was in his pocket in the originally just says my scalpel was ready. Um, there's, there's further statements about, I found what I had been looking for, right? A few things that are added into the novella, but that's just like extra information. And then at the very end, okay. When Marsh comes, this is actually an important change. And actually it's something Brandon mentioned earlier where he said books written on earth 20 years ago in the novella he says books written on earth a hundred years ago so there's a different length of time based on the archaic knowledge he thinks marsh has and rather than say the abos are gone scientific opinion on saint anne holds that they have been extinct for almost a century marsh says the abos are gone they have been extinct for almost a century. So in this one, you don't get the scientific opinion on St. Anne. You say, Earth, 100 years ago, and then immediately, boom, abos have been extinct for that same amount of time. Um, so I think that you know that is an interesting change in the novel as well. And probably the last significant one, though on the very last page of the novella, um, we do get a slight different phrasing about five sentences from the end. So I'm just going to go to the original here. It says, I needed money badly myself at first, but the reputation of the house brought people, period. Seeking buyers or seeking to buy. And in the novel version, it reads, I needed money badly myself at first, but the reputation of the house brought women seeking buyers and men seeking to buy. In the original, there was no distinction between women and men. That, that subject never came up, right? It never said men or women, just something 
No, no, no saying what they are. Something seeking buyers or seeking to buy, period. You know, that kind of leads us into the question of what Fedria is doing at the end of the novel there. Um, maybe the note about women just allows that to flow a lot, a lot better. But what is her role then at the end, bringing the child into the room? How do you read that? And then what do you make of that last line? So the big question I have, even at the end of this, is whether abos and humans could actually breed or not, right? And so if we say, okay, this is an outcrossing, it's either an outcrossing or number five has done exactly what his father did and bred himself a clone here at the end. And so Phaedria has kind of become the clone's guardian. It's either that or he has an outcrossing just like David, and this is the child. But I think... The verbiage of that last line, someday they'll want us. The us is him, his clone line, right? The experiment is to find out why they don't succeed. They want to be desired. They want to be valued. They want to be in charge. Um, And so that they, whether it be society, whether it be the aboriginals that have taken over the society in his image or not, um, is something other. Right. He's not in charge. And so you have the definition where, okay, this is the family unit he's forged with Phaedria and the clone. But is she going to become something like Aunt Janine was? I don't know. That's one of those things that there is a pattern of repetition here. But it seemed more like Aunt Janine was was David right in the previous generation rather than Phaedria becoming what Aunt Janine was. But the leg injury also links them, right? They both had the crippled leg. For me, that phrase, us, someday they'll want us, is the narrator explicitly rejecting Dr. Marsh's explanation of the cloning being a singular. And for me, that's how that comes up at the end, that his shutting down Dr. Marsh's explanation, his desire to get Dr. Marsh out of the room so he could kill his father um, and his inability to listen. He can't even hear what Marsh is saying, that this is like a totally explicit rejection of that notion that that clones, particularly clones in this line, have a singular personality and it's one unbroken personality because it is a rejection of the narrator's subjective experience. And that they'll want us that they I, I mean we suspect that David has gone to the to the capital to try to curry political favor or power but it's not going to make a difference maybe for this generation because we get that line earlier in the book where uh, the father is maybe the most permanent feature of society whether it's because he is actually that unbroken personality for four and five generations or because Society needs a person who is kind of controlling all of the vice and graft on the on the planet is kind of up in the air, but they do want this family, just not in the way that the family wants to be wanted. Right. And the hope maybe is that, you know, having that connection in, in politics with the outcropping might be able to break them from this cycle, might let them curry some favor in some way. I, I do think that there is something of a reversal in this in terms of even the imagery, right? When, um, when David looks at the broken slaves, 
the, the question they keep asking is, are they still human, right? Are these, are these things even human anymore? I hope they're not human. Well, if David and Phaedria are actually representatives of Aborigines, what has happened here is that the human and the Aborigines have, have kind of switched places as far as who's dominant, right? Um, the, the, the humans have become bro- grotesque and subhuman in that case, these, these clone slaves that are sold. And so one of the great things that I did want to mention earlier, but that's okay, we can bring it up now, is when you look at the Aeneid, I don't know how much of this you mentioned, well, Augustus Caesar went to Virgil and said, hey, write me a great epic about the founding of, of the Latin people and, and Italy here. And when he did that, Virgil decided to write a myth in which Asiatic people, the Trojans, came over, conquered everybody who was there, and then established the glory of Rome, more or less. But that's not what happened. Virgil and Augustus Caesar are actually the descendants of the the Latin tribes that were in that area. There was no Trojan force that came in and took them over. And so I think that also applies to this scene where you have that forearm slave who might very well just be a debased and modified human, um, a copy, right, of number five. And they're saying, hey, maybe this is the alien that's not human anymore. But that's just a myth. That's an overlay on what has really happened, where the people who are still in charge are the people that were always in charge, and they're not actually much of people at all, right, at this point. Um, so so I think that that choice of the Aeneid there also plays with the inversion of the Latin and, and you know, the Trojans, where honestly, the Trojan um, occupation of Italy, that's that's just a myth, right? The reality is they've always been Latin there, even though, I mean, what, what is a Latin? You know, that is an area that's that's highly, um, has a lot of genetic interchange and stuff. But but you know what I mean, right? That whole story is a, is a fabrication. And I think that that's the same thing that, that happens at the start when they're talking about all these, the, the, the presence of the abos and whether they're alive or whether they're dead and what humans have done to them. Well, maybe it's what abos have done to human beings. I guess that raises a question about how this story functions as a sort of post-colonial critique in some sense. I'm not su- a super big fan of that type of critical theorizing, right. but it is a story about colonization and the, the horrors of colonization and maybe fits somewhere in, in the post-colonial canon. But if it is then a story about how the Apos have turned the tables on the humans, um, what is the moral of a story like that? Well, I do think that they're living a life that is not theirs, right? That it's something that is barren and degenerate because they don't understand it. And so it's doomed, just like that um, process of relaxation where he's, he's trying to solve it. Well, Marsh also brings up something else, anthropological relaxation where someone is is its own originator. He talks about that, right? And I think that's actually what is going on here, where there's nothing for them to imitate that's valid or different anymore. And they need that infusion in order to to live as human beings. So everything is just crumbling and decayed and falling apart. And so I don't know that this is actually a critique of colonialism so much as it is a critique of certain philosophies, right? What how should we live? How should the abos live? Should we imitate what we see in others? Should we live according to some internal principle? I don't know that this is a purely post-colonial work, even though it is very difficult to tell the difference between an abo and a human being. Um, and I mean, clearly, it's it's dealing with colonialism. But I think Wolf has such a unique 
twisted and interesting take on it that you can't draw the normal moral situation that you would be able to if you were reading like Heart of Darkness or something like that, where you're like, oh yeah, okay, here's here's the evil, right? Well, in this case, I don't think there's malevolence. I just think there's misplaced obsession. It seems like your reading of the of the text and especially this question of uh, of the identities and how people understand what their function or purpose is uh it it seems as if th- this is a story about people not understanding what it means to be alive uh what they've been created for and how they're supposed to live would that be a fair way to characterize that? oh yes definitely and i think when marsh comes at the end there um, he's interested in who he's interested in the person who's been dead for like four or five generations. He's interested in the original, right? The original guy. And we actually have a picture of them. And in it, this is another one of those repetitions of the wood motif. They're standing next to a wooden house that is built in many different, um, times and, and structures. Like it's, it's like, I'm, I'm going to actually find that, that part really quickly and read it because I think it's very important to the theme of, of what we're dealing with here, because they're the only ones who are actually free from it, but they're about to enter that house that is constantly kind of many different things, but nothing unified. So I just want to read this real quickly here. The something was a photograph utilizing, as I suppose, some novelty technique which washed away all colors save a light brown. It was small and from its general appearance and crumbling edges very old. It showed a girl of 25 or so thin and as nearly as I could judge rather tall, standing beside a stocky young man on a paved walkway and holding a baby. The walkway ran along the front of a remarkable house, a very long wooden house, only a story in height, with a porch or veranda that changed its architectural style every 20 or 30 feet, so as to give almost the impression a number of exceedingly narrow houses constructed with their side walls in contact. I mention this detail, which I hardly noticed at the time, because I've so often since my release from prison tried to find some trace of this house. So really what he's looking for, right, is is a return to that that time before they were trapped, right? Where there's the sense that they're going to enter this trap, this wooden house that changes architectural style every 20 or 30 feet. It's almost like this, this imitative thing that isn't one thing. But this is the freedom that they had, and that's been completely lost. All that's left, right, is is Matra's plan, this obsession with why haven't I achieved what I was supposed to achieve? Why aren't I the man I was supposed to be? And I think that's such a huge question in this novella in particular. Now, the one thing I do think is unresolved is what the heck is Marsh then? If I'm saying all these things are abos, well, I think all we can definitively say from the first novella as it was written is that Marsh is something different and that when number five looks at him, he recognizes recognizes him as other immediately. This is not a product of St. Croix. This is something else. But he thinks it's not a normal human being. Because what does number five know about being a normal human being at this point? He either sees echoes of himself or other things imitating the face that he has. So I think his perception on this can't be trusted at face value. But I don't think we can draw any conclusions about whether Marsh is an abo or not from the first novella, except to say, well, he seems to be different than what number five and the other people number five knows are. 
and we can't take number five's accusation as that at that moment as an objective uh, reality right. of the story because it is clearly an attempt to manipulate Dr. Marsh out of the room so he can right. at an insult so that he can murder his father. Um, I did want to make one more claim that you can certainly argue with. And, and you know, if you, like I say, we can always disagree on these things. It's not going to be the end of the world if, if we do. Like, I, I don't think that th- there's only room really for, for one one definitive interpretation of this, even though, you know, I'm arguing, yeah, this is what Wolf intended the whole time. But there are some significant differences in the orb and in the ace novel versions of the fifth head of Cerberus. The orb version is based on the original Scribner that was, you know, the first hardback publication. And it's pretty much unchanged as far as I can tell. There is one reason in the first novella that I prefer the ace version, and it says um, on page 47 that Phaedria's father owned, most of the time, large sums which the lenders could not hope to collect. Well, clearly he owed, without the end, large sums. The ace version, which I think came out a couple years later in 1976. The first ace printing was in 76, so it's four years later. That has that correct as owed. Right, And there are more changes in the second and third novella. So for this reason, and for others, which we will get into at some future date, I prefer the ace version, but I'll be able to make a very specific and much more focused argument for why, you know, at the very end of of everything when we talk again. So it won't be as rambling as, as today. I really look forward to that. Yeah, there were actually a lot of typos in the Orb edition, which is one of the reasons why when we got to this one-line section on page 71, uh, that I assumed that that also was a mistake. Uh, And just for the sake of listeners, we've talked about this passage already, but Mark, I just want to get your definitive answer. Do you you think that 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 is intentional and not an error? Yes, I definitely think that is the pivotal moment at which number five makes a choice from which he cannot return. Before that point, he's external to the lab, and then this breaks the glass. When he goes in there, boom, he's in the lab. He's become his father. There's no more reflected image. They're one thing now. So I think that's the moment when he walks in there that there's no escaping what he's going to be, and he's going to be his father. Well, and I'm not ashamed to admit publicly that Brandon had that right, and I was completely wrong. <laughs> well, I, don't, I just I, don't I thought it highlighted it. the fact that this was being written over the period of three or so years by the um, number five by the narrator. That this three year old is like an important figure in this story. It's brought up by Marsh. It's the age of the uh, child in the first holographic kind of. Uh, show that number five is subjected to and it is the presumed age or near presumed age of the new child when it enters into the lab so i was really just trying to highlight this um that this break really forces you the reader to encounter that this is a break in time maybe even between when the last passage was written and that line was written this is a as you put it, I think a very important moment that he took time to reflect upon before digging into and moving on. And that this break really broke up the time. And all he could say about it was the just one line. That's all we get of the murder of the father. 
And, and like I say, Gwen, you know, I don't want you to think of it as right or wrong, even though I argue in those terms all the time. I mean, this is, this is clearly an active interpretation. And I, I don't think that, you know, even, even as strongly as I can argue something, I don't think you need to feel as if you're wrong in saying this or that. Now, if you said that, you know, um, well, maybe number five isn't a clone of Matra at all. Then, then we might have to get into some of these arguments about right. <laughs> right. But, but at this point, I think we're okay. Well, it's, it is certainly one of the sticks of this show that Brandon and I try to take opposite positions as frequently as possible. It's just better right. radio and uh, and creates yeah. more, more discourse. The one thing that I did want to say is I do think that all of the dreams and visions that he have are unified to one purpose. So the toy soldier and the ship and the, the columns, I think they're all one thing, and that's the threat that he's dealing with that he really can't. So he's in it and he's kind of trapped in that way. And they're so resonant with like those wooden imageries and the legs and the, the trees that are associated with the abos that even though we don't have any glimpse of the lifestyle that these Aborigines had, except in those really fleeting moments, I still think it creates a fairly cohesive pattern where we can say some conclusions are not as open-ended as they originally seem to be. And that uh, the idea that, you know, Aunt Janine is Aubrey Veal, and yet she denies Veal's hypothesis that it's, it's hung on nothing, is one of these great ironies. Because if it's true, right, and I think there is some reason to suspect that it is, then her coming up with it is just ironic, right? It's like she's an abo, she doesn't think she is, she's come up with this theory that explains the truth. She just can't recognize the truth. Even she can't. Right. And so I think there's just some wonderful irony that Wolf loves to play with. But there's this unity in everything that he does. And I, I think this is really a sublime novella. And I don't care if somebody disagrees with me or they think, wow, really, that that, that hour and a half. I, I don't know. He was rambling about wood and stuff. I, I hope that people just love reading it and enjoying it because it's, it's such a, a great novella and such a great book. Yeah, it's so good. And I think, you know, our goal and one thing I love about having you on is that it just opens the discourse further and further. And I think we have a lot of great listeners and a lot of great readers that, that follow along with us. And I think we all just enjoy being challenged, opening up the discourse and getting other people's imagination active and loving Wolf the same way that we all do. Yeah, exactly. Well, Mark, we just want to say thank you so much for joining us once again. And we look forward to you coming back again when we are all the way done with the the novel version of The Fifth Head of Cerberus. Thank you so much. I had a great time talking to you. Keep up the great work. Well, and be sure to check out Mark's books and videos. As you've just experienced for yourself, he is really just a fascinating scholar. He's got such amazing insights and you are doing yourself a disservice if you haven't checked his work out. Yeah. And he's always coming up with new stuff. I don't know that you would hear about his recent reading that the whole planet is populated, or at least Port Mimizan is populated by these replicas of number five, that this is the planetary face. That, I think, is just an incredible reading and really shifts my understanding of the story, and I'm really glad he brought that up. But if you'd like to support our show, if you want more episodes like this, more conversations with, with Wolf scholars like Mark Garamini, more frequent Wolf podcasts or other bonus episodes that you can get on our Patreon feed, we'd love your support. Check us out on Patreon, and we're grateful for anything that you can give. And we'll be back next time to get started on the next installment in this novella collection, a story by John V. Marsh. And we're going to cover pages 85 to 90 in the 1994 Orb edition, even though Mark 
prefers the Ace Edition. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>